Welcome to Let's Chat Dental with Anne Budenberg. In this series, we're going to be talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK. But of course, don't forget to like, rate and review this episode. So I'm joined today by Josh Jackson, who qualified in 2020 from Liverpool Dental School. So after completing dental foundation training in 2021, He's obviously gone on to make a start to his early, early career. And he's taken a slightly different path to some of the other new graduates. So I think we're just going to have a, an overview of this, really just to inform undergraduates and new graduates, one of the paths that you might want to take in your early career. So welcome, Josh. And so perhaps we could just go forward from your foundation year in 2020 and just describe what you've done since then. So I completed my foundation training at, in Sandy Lane uh, in SCEM on the Liverpool scheme. Um, and then I applied for a job at uh, Newcastle School of Dental Sciences, which was an academic clinical fellowship um, DCT post. And it's a three-year post that runs the first year in special care dentistry, um, second year in peds, and third year in restorative dentistry. And the sort of split of that is 75% clinical time with 25% research time. One thing about those posts, those academic clinical fellowship posts, ACFs, they're fairly new. They're not... um, always that well publicized obviously you were fairly focused and knew you wanted to go in that direction but how did you find out about those posts I think they're advertised in on sort of general university websites um, but the recruitment is all still done through Oriel um, which is the same system that you apply through with FD and, and DCT and registrar posts and they are publicized at a, a different time it's sort of October November time that you apply for academic posts and that's when I applied for this one I think I can't remember but normal DCT posts are advertised December onwards something like that so it's a couple of months earlier um, and I think sometimes people find out or you know they're interested in ACF DCT posts but it's too late and the deadlines are already gone so it's something you certainly need to keep an eye on from October so from the from the sort of start of your FD post. I think you're right I think um, the fact the timing is different it's not aligned with the DCT posts. So um, as you say, you're very much at the start of your FD year. So you're very focused on that. So it's, as you say, easy to miss it. And then, you know, you miss out for another year. Um, In terms of the process, applying and preparation, can you describe some of that? Yeah, um, so... Academic posts are all locally appointed, so you apply to the specific university or the specific job that you want. There's not that many of them. There was about between five and ten, I'd say, ACF DCT posts, which is far more than there has been previously. Um, you apply through a sort of online form, and, and yeah, very similar to a sort of DCT application form, but with some, some more academic questions, what experience you've had of research and things like that. Hopefully you're then shortlisted and, and are invited for an interview. I think my interview was in December. I have a feeling it was just before Christmas. And that's with a few different people. So my, my 
post is funded by NIHR. Um, so you have a representative from NIHR, if you, you know, obviously a few people from the host university. And um, then if you're successful through that, you then still have to do the DCT national recruitment stages. So you still have to have your interview for DCT to benchmark. You have to hit a sort of certain percentage to show that you're competent to, to go forward with DCT training. Did you actually feel um, as, as a student, you were almost preparing a little bit for that within that final year? Uh, probably, yeah. Um, I suppose I always wanted to, I knew I wanted to try and do some more training or certainly work in secondary care for a little bit. Um, I knew that I was interested in DCT, um, but I was also interested in the academic side of dentistry. So sooner the better, really. Yeah, as soon as you start preparing for future uh, jobs, uh, the easier it is, I suppose. Um, you still need evidence of um, quality improvement projects and audits and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I was aware of the fact that there was some ACF DCT posts from fifth year onwards and then just kept an eye out for them. Um, when they came around so moving forward now so you obviously started that in september um you're up in newcastle you are eight and a bit months now into this post yeah so um the time i mean time flies it's incredible how quickly that that sort of first year goes um can you tell me a bit more about how that eight months has gone it's been great um I'm working in special care dentistry, so it's roughly three clinical days a week and then two for academic stuff. So gaining lots of experience I've had on the clinical side of things, obviously special care dentistry for, for patients that might have a physical or intellectual or social impairment. There's lots of treatment um, under sedation and lots of treatment on general anaesthetic. So that's something that, that you know, has been really enjoyable and I hadn't had much experience of previously. Um, on the academic side of things it's been really good as well um i've started a pg cert in clinical research um which hopefully is coming to conclusion at the end of this year um and yeah i've sort of free to to find my own projects and things that i'm interested in um which is i think the case with the, with a lot of the acf posts where you, you left your own devices a little bit to go and find what, what your interest is um hopefully something that you want to carry forward for the for the rest of your career really um so yeah it's been great I've really enjoyed it it sounds very interesting quite diverse and there's, there's quite a bit of upskilling basically um so you mentioned sedation um you know which is, is a big shortage of that obviously out in primary care um so you know in terms of if you were to go back into practice do you feel you would be geared up to, to do this in practice? Um, I'd certainly feel more confident to do it. I think there's a certain, you obviously need to do a few qualifications in sedation to provide it in primary care. Um, the sort of the benefit of being in a hospital or in a secondary care setting is that there's always somebody nearby, whether that's a consultant or somebody that's trained in sedation. So you can often, you know, get involved with the treatment and learn from them. And they're always there to sort of handle the sedation side of things. And, you know, you can even shadow or, or do whatever you want. Um, and I think that's the, the good thing about this post is it is so varied. Um, so not only the treatment, you, you, you know, you've got, you can split your time for attending courses. Um, 
I supervise the undergraduate students on their outreach placements. So yeah, it's a really varied career um, and certainly equips you if you were to go back into general practice um, with, with a, a, a wide variety of skills. Yeah, I think, I think it'd be very transferable back. Uh, I mean, I think my understanding is that currently you don't have to have a sedation qualification, but you'd have to have evidence of training, which obviously you're doing now. You have to log all your cases, um, which presumably you have to do anyway. That's a fantastic skill, really, to have. You mentioned the PG cert in clinical research. Um, is that something that's funded or do you have to fund that yourself? Um, so that's funded as part of my post. I think every post is slightly different um, depending on where you, where you are. Um, so, I'm, you know, there's, as I said, there's ACFs at different um, hospitals across the country. Um, there is some funding at Newcastle for that, whether, you know, that can change year to year, obviously, depending on a, a whole range of factors. But that was something that came as part of my post, whether the, the Newcastle are encouraging me to do that, obviously to gain, to learn how to do research, to, to gain some experience in designing projects and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's something that's been really useful and I've learned a lot and it's a good starting point um, when, you, when you're first starting out in an academic post. Um, it's, a, it's a really good place to start. So what do you feel the PG cert and research is actually giving you at the moment? Um, so I suppose because I've never done a research job before or certainly not done um you know loads and loads of projects um it's taught me about the different um ethical approvals that are necessary um grant application writing experience the sort of um mock projects that you do and and they're assessed by the tutors so they can give you an idea as to whether that's something that you know reads well or is likely to get funded and all those kind of things um there's lots of training on so there's a module on stats for example which i was quite weak out before doing the PG cert, something I've always found tricky. Um, but it's been really good, yeah, and, and certainly teaches you how to critically appraise literature um, and, and do things in a methodical way. So it, it's been great, really, and again, not, not just for um, people that want to go into academia, but, you know, for anyone, for any, for any clinician that trying to keep up to date with the evidence base it can teach you some really fundamental skills as you say I think everything you're doing is upskilling you and it just feels though everything's just broadening out massively with all the experiences you're having it's funny you should you, you said one of the things there about the PG cert what you've got out of it is the the fact that you know it the tutors look at it and check whether it reads well um I don't know about you, but certainly a lot of us, certainly in our training as dentists, we kind of get out of the habit of writing well or writing essays. And sometimes when you go back to do that writing in clear English can be a challenge. So I think that skill as well is just for, for anything, whether it's dentistry or anything else you do. Yeah, absolutely. I think as clinicians, you get used to writing in bullet points and writing sort of very short things that, that don't necessarily make sense to anybody else other than clinicians. Um, and I've certainly found when, when I've been writing things or when I first started in this job, I thought, oh, God, that doesn't, that doesn't read well at all. Um, so, yeah, getting back into the habits that you probably learn at school and in English classes is important when you're writing grant applications. Absolutely, because it's you're trying to 
convey what you mean. You know what you mean, but do they know what you mean when, when ethics committees look at things? I mean, I went on a really useful course a few years ago. It's the Plain English Campaign. That's, that's the, the company. Um, and it, it is, I mean, you can do a whole day on grammar or, you know, where to put apostrophes or um, semicolons and do all this kind of thing. You know, it's the last thing I ever wanted to do when I was, um, you know, when I started as a dentist or, you know, it was just no interest. But suddenly things like that become quite interesting because it's quite important. Yeah, and I suppose that's reminded me of something else about the post in that there's a study budget associated with um, an IHR post. So you're entitled to a thousand pound a year. Um, I'm not sure whether it's different depending on whether it's a registrar level or DCT, but that's what, what I get in my job. Um, so if you are interested in a particular course, um, whether that's more clinically based or you know more academically based, you can apply for that funding and, and go ahead with that. Um, so it's paid for a, a couple of conferences for me this year, which has been really good. Um, so yeah, anything that you're interested in that's relatable to dentistry, obviously, or relatable to your job, um, you can apply for that funding. Yeah, no, no, excellent. And um, so what conferences have you been on so far in the post? Um, I went to BSSPD, um, which was up in Aberdeen this year, which was really good. Um, and I booked uh, BSP. Um, so yeah, there's loads of BSP, BSPDs. <laughs> BSSPD is, is prosthodontics. Um, and that, yeah, that was up in Aberdeen. And BSP is Perio. And that's down in Luton in October. Um, so I'll be heading down there um, for a few days, which I'm looking forward to. Excellent. So it's a three-year post. So what's going to happen um, when you get to the end of August? Because that would be the end of year one. What will happen in year two? Um, so, yeah, the, I suppose the biggest difference is that usually you'd have to be applying for your second job or your DCT2 through your DCT1 post, whereas this is a run-through. So I don't really stop. You know, it, it's just a job for three years as opposed to moving somewhere else. Um, which is another thing that appealed to me, I suppose, somewhere where you can, you know, you don't need to worry about national recruitment and you can just focus on getting some work done. And um, certainly for things like quality improvement projects, it it, um, it helps you out a little bit knowing that you don't have to finish it by, you know, rushing everything to get done by August and then moving on. Um, so I'll, I'll move to paediatrics um, in September um, and then, yeah, restorative in the third year. Um, so nothing much changes, to be honest, with it being a run-through post other than my clinical placement. Um, I suppose the thing to note with the, the ACF DCTs is that you have to have the same um, clinical targets as somebody that is doing DCT full-time. So on those three days a week that I have clinical work on, um, I still have to meet the same IRCP targets and all the rest of it. So you've got a lot less time. Um, to achieve the same thing so it, you know it's, it's certainly not easy um but I, I think it's worth doing personally because you yeah you get a lot much more of a varied job role uh, but certainly not for everyone yeah well i suppose that brings us on to some of the challenges so what you're saying obviously there are still as in foundation training there's certain um clinical markers that you've got to achieve so what kind of numbers are they? Are they 
quite manageable or is it a bit more of a challenge having to squash it into three days? Um, so the good thing about DCT targets are they're not numbers based quite as much. So I can't remember the actual numbers we had to achieve at, at FD, but for example, if it was 10 dentures, I, I honestly can't remember, but yeah, I can't, um, say it was 10. There's no, there's no target to hit with, um, my job at the moment it's just you know gain is as much experience as possible um do you have some evidence of teaching do you have some evidence of um attending study days um all that kind of thing um i suppose it has to be like that in certain jobs especially in special care where you have um certain you know you might have a higher non-attendance rate um or was not brought rate um so it's much more difficult to assign numbers to that sort of job um, and I, yeah, it, it, as long as you're on the ball with it and you know your target straight from the off, and I think that's the same in FD or in any job where you've got to manage your portfolio, know what you need to achieve at the start of the year. So make sure you know this is when the deadline is for IRCP and this is what I need to get done. I need to get you know a certain number of um, dots done or, or whatever in this month or that month. Um, so it is manageable as long as you target it from the off and you're aware of it. Um, but you certainly don't want to be leaving it until April, May time to think, oh, God, I've not done any any teaching or whatever it is, whatever you're lacking of. So, yeah, to, to be really on the ball from the start is important in any academic job, I'd say, when, you, when you're trying to spin lots of plates at the same time. Yeah, it sounds as though you have to be quite organised. You've got your research, you've got your project, you've got your PG cert, um, which from experience PG certs are quite a lot of work and then you've got this clinical so it's full on any tips on staying organized um I suppose my main one would be yeah just just make sure you're aware of your deadlines and and I try and set targets for each week as well so I think you know on a Sunday night or the Monday morning or whatever um I need to get this done you know I need to have a grant application in by the end of the month or whenever it is. So I need to make sure I've got a first draft written by this date. Um, and I find that's always worked pretty well, um, especially when you've got a um, educational supervisor that you can work with. Um, so in FD as well, it was similar with, with Rasheen. Um, we, know, we knew I needed to get a certain case in by this deadline. So we were on the lookout for that particular case, whether it was with an associate that they wouldn't mind me doing with them or for them or whatever um so yeah using your educational supervisor as well is important if you're struggling to hit certain requirements or certain targets um or maybe if your timetable isn't um helping you achieve those and you could tweak it so i don't know maybe one particular clinic is a lot big, busier than another and you could swap them around or something like that so yeah being aware of things and being proactive is really important um, in any DCT job, but particularly in one where you've got far less clinical time than than is the norm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you're not wasting any time, but it's it's certainly not a post you you're, you are going to waste time in. It's every minute is going to be used. I'm sure to good effect. Um, in terms of so you were COVID, you were the COVID year known. I don't know if everyone's if you were known as the COVID year, but <laughs> you certainly. Um, didn't have an easy time because you, you were finishing your final year when COVID hit with all the issues around that then started foundation training in 
in this in the same year and of course people were quite um concerned about this about you know where they're going to get enough experience and you know how do you feel about that what impact did this have on you um so yeah i suppose that when i think of covid the bulk of it was during my fd year rather than in this job because when i came up to newcastle it was tailing off a little bit and then we had another spike at christmas i think but we were more equipped for it then you know when i first started fd there was loads of sops that were changing all the time and again i was fortunate because i was in a practice where they were already really well set up and and managing things well um so during fd i suppose the fallow time had a, had a big impact um you could see less patients as a result you know you had to leave the room for half an hour at, at one point um when when I came to Newcastle again, it, it, all those sorts of SOPs um, had been in place for a long time, um, so I don't feel it impacted too much. Um, certainly not as much as it would have done on previous DCT years. Um, there's still in, in in secondary care, certainly in Newcastle, there's still a lot of SOPs that are in place that aren't necessarily there in general practice. So the fallow times are still a little bit longer. Um, so it has an impact in that respect. Um, but I wouldn't say it was hindering my development in any way um, compared to if it was just normal, non-COVID times. Um, you can still achieve all you want to achieve in that year or whatever post you're in, you know, year or three years. And hopefully it's only going to get better. Um, fingers crossed. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yes. Um, I mean, I think at the time, sometimes um, when you're when you're newly qualified, um it, it seems slightly the end of the world because it wasn't what you had in mind when you started in practice but you know I remember you know it's easy to say in the bigger picture of all the years you're going to work people look back on it and and find it was just a very very strange time um even now looking back um some of the things are you know they're not what we're doing now but it's what we had to do at the time nobody knew yeah it was i think my training was quite hands-on um and and rasheen liked to come in the just come in your room and see what you were doing um covid stopped that from happening so whereas if i was struggling with something i could have ordinarily just sent her a message next door and she'd be in the room within 10 seconds um having to doff and don on and whatever else it, it just made everything a lot slower and a lot more difficult for her to come in and out when she wanted to obviously it was a closed door policy during during covid whereas previously um, it was certainly an open door policy at sandy lane so she knew what was going on um so that that, that was the that was the big downside i think um is that it wasn't as easy for either shadowing her or her to do dops for me um but you know, you get over it, you get used to it, and and you know, it's just planning your diaries really well again. So making sure your diaries align, or blocking di someone's diary off so they can be in the other room and be um, have all the PPE on. Um, you, you, I think you manage, you get through it when you have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose you hadn't known anything different, um, and it, you know, you were in a busy practice with lots going on. As you said, they were very proactive. Um, as an urgent care centre so I guess you had lots of opportunities there to 
see a lot of patients. Yeah, I think the urgent care centres were, were difficult for anyone that was doing it because they were so busy and you were getting patients in that perhaps hadn't been to the dentist for a, a number of years and there was you know lots of dental disease to treat. Um, for an FD, I think it's great experience. Um, certainly emergency appointments where somebody comes in pain and you have to get them out of pain in that time. Um, I think it's a really good experience. Um, so yeah, I quite enjoyed seeing the um, UDC patients because I thought I thought they were great um, experience. Um, maybe not great for for the practices that had to um, rely on getting a full medical issue really quickly. You know, you just have a patient rock up and you've never ever seen them before. Um, you have no idea what the situation is going to be when they get there. Whether they're extremely anxious and a lot of patients were. I found that that came as part of that UDC contract, um, which presents a whole host of new challenges. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really good experience for me. Moving on a little bit to sort of where you are now, and we've talked about, you know, how um, it's obviously a great opportunity that you've got for the three years. You've got that stability, um, but equally it's busy. Um, so balancing everything, um, as you say, spinning a few plates at one time obviously we're constantly speaking about how do you get this work-life balance do you ever get that how do you do that how do you maintain both um so it's difficult i think in in academic jobs because the hours are very unpredictable um depending on what project you're working on um you might have to work late at night so yeah i'm giving a a lecture tonight um so I'm, I'll be working until probably half eight, nine o'clock. Um, and it's being disciplined, I suppose, and think this is work time and then this is time to relax. Trying not to, um, you know, plan cases when you're meant to be sitting on the couch relaxing or when you're meant to be going to the gym or things like that. Um, I think it's easier when you've got either, you know, people that are close to you, whether that's family or friends that's, that make you stop working. Um, and say right that's enough for today you know we're going out or whatever um but i, I suppose the work-life balance um in academia has always been an issue you know because it how unpredictable the work is it, perhaps a little bit different um if your clinical base and a practice is only open from nine till five or whatever it is um you can be a little bit more strict because you can't see patients in that time having said that i've got a lot of a lot of my friends that work in general practice they don't switch off either too well um <laughs> you're always thinking of a case that you've got in tomorrow or that's just dentistry, I suppose. Um, so I don't think we're very good at that as a profession is learning to switch off. Um, but I suppose, yeah, being disciplined and saying, right, we're going on holiday and I'm leaving my laptop at home or whatever um, is the way forward. Um, I can't say I do that myself, but that's what I try to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm asking you this question and I, I haven't got the answer either because I, I take the laptop is goes with me everywhere it's almost a comfort blanket that you think oh I maybe just look something up so it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's not a bad thing being hard working um I suppose that if you get to a stage in your career where you're burnt out it's probably too late you know you should have been doing things prior to that to stop it getting to that point um because it can take a long time to recover if you get to the point where you're completely worn out and you can't do any more work and you, you have to have some time off um the better approach probably would have been to work less in the lead up to that um but that's easier said than done um 
So I've, yeah, a few people that I know that have been knackered with work or whatever. Um, it, it's the run up that's caused it rather than how you recover from it. Um, so just taking regular breaks, I suppose, is something that I'd advise, but I'm probably not the best person to ask for that because I'm worse than anyone for working out of hours. Yeah. As you say, academia, you can lose yourself in cyberspace on reading for hours. Um, but as you say, I think, you know, you already said having somebody else around you, close to you to say, right, you know, to drag you out or something else, you know, whatever hobby, you know, is, are there other things that you like to do, hobbies or? Um, yeah, we, we like traveling. Um, so yeah, we like going on holiday. Um, I like football as well. So I like watching football and I certainly don't play it anymore, but I probably should to try and get my fitness up again. Um, when you just move to a new area. So I still feel like I haven't seen loads of Newcastle yet because I'd, I'd only been once or twice before, before moving up here. Um, there's loads of places around here that, that are great. Um, Whitley Bay and Tyremouth and the seaside. You've obviously got the football teams. There's a, there's a huge variety of things you can do in Newcastle and in the Northeast. Um, so it's a great place for switching off for a bit. Um, but yeah, something that <laughs> need to improve on really and, and start making the most of my weekends a little bit more. You're at that early stage. You're hopefully always be full of enthusiasm, but I think that, you know, that's great. It, it's just, I suppose it's just having that awareness. And I mean, we've, everyone's spoken about sort of mental health and well-being so much um, after COVID or during COVID. So yeah, it's just having that awareness. That doesn't mean we can do it. I definitely do not have the answer to that. Um, but you can tell when you've been work, 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 and then you have a week off or even a, a weekend, long weekend off, when you come back, some of the problems that you previously couldn't quite solve seem to be quite easy to solve. So there, there's something going on mentally that's um, helping you recover when you're, you, you take time out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, the important thing is when you go on, when you're taking time out, that it is time out. It's not time off to catch up with your portfolio or time to catch up with your research projects it is trying to have that time off full stop um to do normal things that normal people do um that dentists often don't get a chance to because they're working too hard stephen covey who people always quote that in a management book the seven habits of successful people something like that uh, and one of the things he talks about when taking time out you know it's sharpening the saw and um I thought that's the one thing I sort of remember from that book. Um, you feel you feel it as soon as you come back. I mean, you've just said you're 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 about to go on holiday later in the week, so it'd be interesting how you feel after that. And it's quite different. Hopefully, yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've just got my calendar up as you as you've said that on on the computer. Yeah, and there's a few meetings booked whilst I'm away. Um, so yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> So work happiness, how do you rate your work happiness? Uh, at the minute, I'm really happy because <laughs> um, I'm in a, yeah, I never, I always knew I was interested in an academic career or certainly doing further training. Um, 
and I've got a really good mix of, of different things um, that I do in the week. Um, no two weeks are the same. Um, you're always working on different projects or trying to get different things um, published. And yeah, there's, there's always something to target. Um, so yeah, I, I am happy personally. Uh, I know it's not for everybody, um, but yeah, it's something that I really enjoy. So yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. So I think the other aspect, apart from the ex personal experience you're getting, the upskilling that we've mentioned, what about the huge range of people that you're, you're meeting and have met in this post um, who you're interacting with? What, what kind of impact is that having? Uh, I suppose in any academic environment, you, you, in the workplace, I suppose you have a, a huge spectrum um people at different stages in the career so i'm very much at the start of that so yeah trying to find my research interest and um trying to find something that i want to carry on doing for, for a significant portion of my career um at newcastle I'm, I'm very fortunate because we have um so many different people with variety of research interests whether that's in um dental materials um health economics um so I'm fortunate that if there is something you're interested in, there's usually someone at Newcastle that's pretty much an expert in that area. Um, so, yeah, if you've got a particular project that you want to do or something that you think you want to do, if, there's always somebody to approach that will know a hell of a lot more than you will on it, um, and whether it's a viable project or whether it's something that you feel is achievable. Um, so it, it's great in that respect. Um, there's loads and loads of trainees. Um, there's lots of... Um, clinical academics that are on the training pathway um, as well as the, the more senior people to sort of try and feed off and, and learn as much as you can from. Um, so yeah, I'm fortunate in that respect. I think that's one of the big advantages of, of working in that environment that, as you say, there's always an expert to go to on whatever topic. So, you know, which that's hugely valuable. Um, to be able to do that and tap into that and, and just learn from them, I guess. Um, is there anyone who's sort of a particularly mentoring you? Uh, yeah, so um, I suppose I've got two main supervisors, um, Richard Holiday, who's a uh, senior collector, um, restorative dentistry. Um, he's my academic supervisor, so I meet with him regularly to discuss um, my progress. I have two um two aspects to that i have a clinical um educator supervisor in, in gray walton who's a um consultant in special care and, and richard holidays on the academic side um i also work with helen rogers um he's a pediatric dentist um and she's been really helpful as well in, in guiding me and, and and you know teaching me the ropes basically um <laughs> as as an early career researcher um so I suppose it's those three different people that have, have, have guided me most um, and, have, and have really been supportive of the different projects that I'm trying to get off the ground. Fantastic. It's great to know that. And um, so I just want to go back slightly to undergraduate knowledge of career opportunities, because quite often you just it's just by luck that you hear about um, certain career pathways or or you don't know very much about it so if you could sort of um speak to some undergraduates now 
or go back to how you were when you were in your say third or fourth year what advice would you give um I suppose to anyone at undergraduate level it's never too early to start things so um for example when you when you go for a DCT job or a registrar job or whatever it is they'll always want evidence that you've you know um quality improvement projects maybe you know some audits um that you've taken on some leadership roles um so whether that's just a course um year representative or something like that 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 demonstrates leadership and good organization and good planning um i definitely recommend um for undergraduates to get involved with societies that they think they might be interested in so i mentioned earlier that i've been, that i've got a couple of conferences planned for this year um they're really cheap for undergraduates. Um, I think the British Society of Prosthodontics is only a fiver or a tenner or something like that for the year. And you've got access to a load of webinars. Um, you get a, a reduced rate for the conference. Um, a lot of the societies are free um, and they all have local meetings. Um, so you can go along and, and yeah, get involved in any way you can. Um, I'd always try and get a poster or you know something like that try and find an interesting case on clinic that you want to write up and try and present your work somewhere because I think that's a really good experience both in gaining experience presenting um, and in writing um, so just try and do as much as you can it, it's difficult because undergraduate so hard <laughs> the actual course is so hard on its own uh, without trying to do loads of extra stuff so you might not be able to achieve all that um, but it's never too early to, to start. And, you know, any quality improvement projects that you do at undergraduate level will stand you in good stead, even if they amount to nothing. It's just the experience of, of doing it and, and, you know, understanding what they are um, is really good for um, future um, recruitment pathways. Um, so trying to do FD national recruitment or DCT national recruitment, it's really good to have an understanding of what research is, what quality improvement is, what service valuations are. Um, so if you can do something like that, then that would be really good. Okay, that's good advice. That's a fairly long list. So as you say, you know, it's just some ideas um, because you, the course, as you know, is busy. So you, you can't do everything. But picking up on some of that is great advice. Is there anything in particular, you know, any particularly sort of nuggets of advice that you've been given at any point that have really helped you? Uh, yeah, um, it's difficult to remember everything because I suppose you're, you're molded as you go through and you pick up loads of different tips from different people. Um, I suppose focusing on improving your skills in your early year was the most important piece of advice. Um, so it's certainly in the first five years um, of your career, um, upskilling as much as you can, um, going on as you know, a few courses, and that doesn't have to be, you know, dental core training or specialty training. You don't, you know, you, that isn't for everybody because, you know, it, it's difficult and long. Um, but you can do day courses in different things. Max Course is a, is a great resource for finding hands-on courses that are often a lot cheaper than, um, than you'd think. Um, so sometimes for £100, £150, you can have a hands-on endo course. Um, for a full day with, with a specialist or with a consultant. Um, so, yeah, going on as many different courses as you can, um, especially if it's relatable to your interest or your the area in which you're working. Um, so whether you're interested in endo, for example, if you're doing a lot of endo in practice, 
Um, or if you're doing, you're finding a lot of your extractions and surgicals, um, finding a course that's applicable to that particular skill is, is really important, I think, as, you, as you're just starting off. You're fortunate at undergraduate level and FD because all the all that's sorted for you. You know, you have your study days at FD, um, which are really varied, and you'll have one on oral surgery, hopefully, um, or one on endo or whatever it is. Um, but once that finishes, um, it's on you to try and decide what courses you want to go on and to keep up with your CPD. Um, so upskilling as much as you can in your early years, I'd say, is, is the most important thing. Absolutely. You've obviously been quite focused and knew, knew where you were going to go. So, um, of course, not everyone is sure. They're not sure what they want to do. And so staying in practice is a great option secondary care is also a good option or you can combine a bit of both and I think this I mentioned um, in what my intro to this uh, podcast the fact that careers are often called squiggly and um, there's two women Helen Topper and Sarah Ellis who have a podcast um, squiggly careers and you know, everyone makes different choices, but that doesn't mean it's the wrong choice. And it doesn't have to be that very linear, um, you know, one step after the other. You can hop on and off. And I think that's a huge advantage with dentistry, that you can dip in and out of different things and keep things interesting and varied. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's nothing to say you can't stay in general practice for a little bit longer and then go and do dental core training if that's what you want to do. So obviously if you want to do specialty training at some point, you pretty much have to do dental core training, but there's nothing to say you have to do it immediately after FD. If, if you're not sure of what you want to do, you can always take a job in practice and then apply the following year or the year after or whatever. I suppose the longer it goes on, the more difficult it is to then go back to being a DCT, um, both sort of financially and from a learning perspective, I think, if you want to end up being a specialist or doing specialty training or, you know, whatever it is, um, you're better off trying to do it earlier if you can. Um, but yeah, I know quite a few people that have been in practice for a few years and then come back to secondary care. There's so many different things. There's nothing to say you have to do training and work in secondary care. There's lots of staff grade jobs um, that you could work one day a week in, in a dental hospital or something like that. Um, but I think varieties really important certainly for me um i like to do different things rather than just doing 100 percent clinical you know all day every day i think it's good to have a bit of a mix yeah i think there's quite a lot of evidence to show that people who have had a bit of a mix are probably less likely to burn out um so whether that's even just one day a week or half a day a week doing something else it just mixes things up and um, keeps things interesting I'm, I'm just going to end, I can bring it sort of to a close and I just want to ask you, I wouldn't normally say to people, you know, how much do you earn and you don't need to tell me that, but just so that people have an idea, the ACF posts, the three-year ACF, are they on a similar pay scale to DCT or are they slightly different? Um, yeah, so the ACF, DCT posts are exactly the same. Um, so you're on that national um, graded pay um directly proportional to dct so you get the exact same as a dct1 in your second year the same as dc2 third year same as a dc3 
um, which is good. Um, your salary isn't paid by the NHS. It's funded by NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, um, which makes no difference to you, really, because um, you get the same amount. Um, but I think it's, it, that, that, that's good because you get your, your research experience and your academic job in, in jobs that perhaps weren't as closely correlated with um, dental core training or any clinical training pathway. Um, they were very much, you know, locally appointed and this is what the salary is type thing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I'm on the same as DCT. <laughs> That's good to know. It's a, a thorny question that people need to know. And um, I guess it's just, you know, we're at that stage where research is being recognised. It's really, really important. It's as important as the clinical and it has to be recognised. So um, that's really good. It's great to hear about the post and the fact that you're enjoying it so much. And really, for me, the takeaway points are that the ACAF posts, there's not many of them. Um, you need to be organized if you're going to apply for those posts they are slightly earlier than DCTs so you need to be looking out for them and applying and getting ready to apply they, they give you stability because you've got three years and funded at same rate as DCT one two three and for any undergrads who are thinking about um, doing any of those secondary care posts keep looking out for them and I like what you say about joining the other societies early as, as a student um, bearing in mind that they're, they're giving it away really aren't they they want to um, you to kind of join them um, so and I know the British Endodontic Society has have just started an early career pathway um, because I think a lot traditionally a lot of those societies in the past have had the kind of image that they're for, for specialists, but they're really for everyone. Um, and so that's, I think we're in a good place with that now. So I just would like to thank you, Josh, for taking the time to explain that and wish you all the best with the, the rest of the post. And maybe we can um, talk again when you're sort of near the end of the three years just to see where you've got to and how you're feeling about it yeah, um, thanks very much Anne. okay so, so that brings us to the end and please don't forget to give us some feedback and tell us you know what you think is important for a fulfilling and happy dental career let's chat dental with Anne Budenberg talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK don't forget to like, rate and review this episode.